Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. I'm really excited about today's episode. My interview is with Bliss Flocaire. She's a burlesque dancer, photographer. We talk about a number of things, some sort of taboo topics. Uh, she was a total rock star. I sort of tiptoed around all these different things, trying not to embarrass myself more than anything. Um, but there is a particular topic that comes up during the interview around evolution and people learning from their mistakes and growing as individuals. And I just want to preface that section of the podcast a little bit. Uh, there was a time in high school uh, in English class where I was uh, caught by peers of mine using a homophobic slur. And I've never been a homophobic person. I would like to think that I've been a pretty nice person most of my life. But it's one of those things where it's a word that I heard used by another person or in a song or something and just thought, oh, okay, yeah, like that's what that word means. And, you know, I'm going to take it and run with it and uh, not realizing what exactly I was saying and, and who it might offend. And so it was a pretty transformative moment for me as an individual and not a moment that I'm particularly proud of, but I am thankful that it gave me the opportunity to learn from my mistakes. And so, uh, again, that is something that comes up in the show. I don't want people to hear that and think, oh, Justin's actually a horrible person. I've been misled this entire time. Um, other than that, it's it's a pretty uplifting interview. Like I said, Bliss was awesome. We got to cover a, a number of different things. This is the longest interview that I've done, and for good reason. She uh, is really knowledgeable on photography on dancing we talked about sex workers and the struggles that they have right now uh, across the country um, we talked a little bit off mic about hustlers the movie that's out right now with uh, jennifer lopez she highly recommends it uh, and i can't wait to see it based on that recommendation so uh, stay tuned again it's a great interview obviously you can always find these interviews on the website buddyruski.com you can find them on all the streaming services uh you can look me up on the internet on social media at buddyruski b-u-d-d-y-r-u-s-k-i uh love the chat love to talk to you more about the interviews that i'm doing about media you name it uh my phone is is always open to listeners so hit me up with that this is my interview with bliss hope you enjoy it Welcome back to the Buddy Ruski Show. This is episode 10. Very proud to be in the double digits now. Uh, my guest today is my dear friend Bliss. She is a burlesque dancer, photographer extraordinaire. She and I have been friends together for some time now. Went to high school here in Durham over at Riverside High School. Bliss and I worked together for a short time 
at Runaway. Uh, and generally, Bliss has been a guide for me, particularly on her Instagram page, uh, as someone who I look to when it comes to uh, many sort of taboo topics around gender identity, uh, sex work, you name it. Uh, so I'm really interested in having this conversation with her uh, and, and unpacking some of these topics that I feel very uneducated about and would like um, even more guidance than she's already given me, unknowingly given me uh, through her social media. So Bliss, welcome to the Buddy Ruski Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, like I said, this is um, an opportunity for me. I've told everyone that I mentioned uh, when I was going to do this episode that I- I'm ready to have my ass handed to me. So uh, don't don't feel like you have to hold back uh, if I make any missteps during our conversation. Uh, but yeah. first, I'd love to just have you introduce yourself, sort of where you're where you're from, your background a little bit. Um, you told me that you were not born here in Durham, but have been here for most of your life. So tell everyone a little bit about who you are and, and sort of how you got to this point. Yeah, uh, my name is Bliss. I am originally from upstate New York. I moved here when I was seven, so been here for 20 some years. Um, and uh, I have always been a pretty creative child um, person. My mom was an artist and gave me a lot of freedom to explore myself, um, which I'm really thankful for. Uh, and I started dancing when I was pretty young and started doing theater and I just really loved being on stage and, um, because of, I think the support that she gave me to explore things that I wanted to do. Um, I grew up to be pretty, but fairly confident person. Um, and later in life, the theater stage dancing and confidence all culminated into me um, auditioning at a strip club and doing it because I was really interested in the culture and um, then finding that it was something that I really enjoyed and loved. Um, And since then, I have used that throughout my life um you'll always hear strippers say that um or sex workers in general say that working in that industry I mean it's it just gives you the skills to (laughs) interact with people in a totally different way um and yeah I am now uh also a photographer and um yeah, that's pretty much what's brought me to this point. Uh, I travel a lot, but Durham is home base. I feel like maybe you're not giving yourself enough credit for uh, for all the cool and interesting things that you do. <laughs> I have so many things. <laughs> what? Who were some of your influences? Uh, you said that you got interested in dancing and theater and pretty early on in your childhood. Who were some of your influences that you think uh, you look to, not just in mm. the dance and theater space but specifically when you talk about having the confidence uh at that early age were there any people that you uh admired um I don't think it was as much that there were people that I admired or that I sort of 
it inspired me to be that way. I really think it was more so that um, that confidence and that um, curiosity wasn't ever questioned as a child. And I have worked extensively in childcare and um, with young children's education. And I find that when we put the questions that we like our insecurities as adults, when we put those on children or when we say like oh don't dance like that in public you know you're because we find we might find it embarrassing that the children they don't have that sense of embarrassment and as adults we really cultivate that and we build that into these children Um, and so I think it was more so that I just didn't really have that and same with um, my sexuality like my identity my sexual identity was never um, that was never a, a topic of conversation. I never had like a coming out moment because there was nothing to come out. It was just, I'm dating who I date and that's okay. Um, and I know I'm really lucky to have that and that that's really rare. Um, yeah. How did you end up here in Durham? You said you moved here from upstate New York when you were seven. Yeah. Uh, what was it about Durham? I guess it was that your parent uh, that brought your parents here. Yeah, my um, my mom is um, or was a Waldorf school teacher. Which, if you don't know about Waldorf, it's like Montessori but more hippie, <laughs> if you can imagine. Um, and so she worked at uh, Waldorf School in Buffalo and then in Toronto. And then um, there was one here and they offered her a job and it was not some place that I think she ever expected ending up, but we moved here and didn't leave. So were you living in Toronto before you moved to Durham? I was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember much about that? I do. I remember. I mean, I just remember it being totally magical. We lived on a maple syrup tapping farm, and there was like a little pond behind our house, and just crazy dragonflies, and the snow sometimes would be like up, like literally up to my chest <laughs> as a child. Sure. But still, um, yeah, I remember it being totally beautiful and magical. Have you been able to go back? Um, I haven't been back to Toronto, I don't think. Um, I've been, I recently went up to Vancouver and road tripped around there and, um, sort of a similar, I mean, obviously totally different sides of the country, but similar vibe. Um, and yeah, they're just, their way of life is pretty different. I got to go to Montreal for a weekend. We stayed at McGill University. Uh, for the program I was teaching last year. And one of the first things the woman that was one of the co-directors of the program uh, before I got there, because I told her I'd never been, she was like, I'm just warning you that everyone in Montreal is absolutely beautiful. And (laughs) she wasn't lying. And I just remember being awestruck by literally every person in their normal like work attire Mm -hmm. or workout attire whatever they were doing yeah yeah and uh i assume that's the french influence um, (laughs) in that particular province but yeah if you ever get a chance to go to montreal i would bump it up on your uh travel list yeah so you've been in durham for most of your childhood Mm -hmm. uh your mother is teaching down here when you 
or graduating from Riverside, what is it that you're sort of thinking about career-wise? Oh, theater, 100%. Yeah. I wanted to be a movie star. And I, I, I mean, it was like my only passion uh, besides smoking weed. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was so enamored by everything theater. Um, I was definitely more into the dramatic, dark, moody like tear your soul out and leave it on the stage um and again I had no problem with that vulnerability um and that's that was really the only thing I ever imagined doing um was it theater specifically or was it just acting in general was did it have um, to be on a stage or were you thinking about film or I think I think that I, I had never been on a film set, um, so now that I have been on film sets, it doesn't really appeal to me, but I think that in my mind, it was like, oh, I'm going to go to school for theater, and then I'm going to be a movie star, and the glamour part was, you know, I mean, I think that's intriguing to most people, that glamorous movie star lifestyle, um, but what I really loved, and what I still really love, is is that on stage total like presence with your audience um and i i definitely miss that um and i do it in other forms of art now but there was a period of time where i wasn't on the stage and um it definitely felt like i mean i think if you have something that you are totally passionate and connected to when that when you let that because i definitely let it walk out of my life um it feels like there's this like emptiness or this hole that can't be filled with anything else. Did you end up going to university after high school? Yeah, so I went to um, Wake Tech for a year. Uh, I was kind of in that phase of like, I just want to be on my own. I don't want to live with my parents. And, you know, and I moved out, I uh, moved into an apartment at 18. <laughs> Uh, very quickly realized I was not quite ready for that to be totally financially responsible and going to school Um, and so I ended up auditioning for Greensboro College Theater Conservatory and um, out of a hundred and twenty people they chose 12 people and I was one of them so that felt very uh, felt like a bit pretty big accomplishment Um, and yeah, I went to Greensboro, moved to Greensboro. Uh, I was in a relationship at the time, a pretty bad relationship, and ended up dropping out after my first year because I was so consumed with this person mm. that it was, you know, kind of all, that was that was my focus. That was pretty much all I could focus on. Um, and I there I don't regret very many things in my life but I think that's one of the times where I feel like if someone had stepped in and said no you need to think about this or no you need to stay um, I probably would have and I'm not putting that on like it's not someone else's responsibility but um, I do regret that decision a little bit yeah and I think that's where 
you know, so much, uh, so many times people, when they think about success and, and mm. successful people, they think, oh, they, um, you know, they manifested this from the time that they were in their adolescence. They were destined to become, you know, movie stars or famous musicians or whatever. And there are so many moments throughout their life where they did have somebody that stepped in and said, mm-hmm. don't give up on this yeah. or let me help you with this. Mm-hmm. And I often think about that, you know, working in a, um, in a startup community here now in Durham where, or even with, with runaway with Gabe and I, that we had a lot of opportunities because if we were surrounded by, um, you know, Steve Shule, who's now the mayor of Durham, was in our Kickstarter video. Yeah. The previous mayor, Bill Bell, was also in our Kickstarter yep. video. Um, you know, Pierce Freelon, who ran for mayor, was in our Kickstarter video. So we had a lot of help along the way that there are probably, you know, 50 other clothing designers in Durham that um, don't have that same support group. And so it, it helps to have those people in your life along the way that can steer you in the right direction or at mm-hmm. least be a different voice than your own because I think that's where some people get trapped is there you know you're your own worst critic and so you don't have a second opinion that can give some balance to whatever it is that you're feeling yeah or just having when when it's you and just one other person that can even be more dangerous right yeah if that particular person is the is the problem Mm -hmm. so um, is this the point then when theater walked out of your life uh, it was more like a swift shove out the door mm. from me. Um, I think I kind of did this 180 where I was like, okay, well, if I'm not doing it, if I'm, if I'm quitting, if I'm giving up this scholarship, this schooling, then we are done. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I left theater, um, stayed in that relationship for longer than was healthy I mean all of it pretty much but um I don't want to say longer than I should have because there's no really sense of when you should or shouldn't um but I then found burlesque um I went to see a show and there were two burlesque dancers that were opening up. And, this is in Greensboro? Uh, no, this was back in Chapel Hill. So okay. I had moved back. Um, and there were two burlesque dancers. And I had never seen burlesque. I was totally obsessed with pinup girls, 1950s, 40s aesthetic. Um, and these two women came on stage and they took their clothes off. Not all of their clothes, but fair amount of their clothes and sort of the the art, the you know, it included dance, it included theatrics, it included costuming, and it included stripping. And I had never seen all of those things put together. And I remember literally seeing these women and being like, Oh my god, this is what I want to do. This this is everything I love, all mashed together. Um And so I went home and I followed one of the dancers on MySpace. (laughs) Um, Not aging myself, am I? (laughs) I feel like I have a a slightly older audience, so most of the people that listen to this will probably remember MySpace. 
so followed one on MySpace. Um, a few months later, she put up a call saying that she was looking for dancers uh, for New Year's Eve, burlesque dancers. And I was like, yeah, why not? So I messaged her. I was like, I've never done this before, but I've done a lot of go-go dancing and other types of dancing. And I did theater and I feel pretty confident I could do it. Um, and she hired me. Um, and for those of you who don't know what burlesque is, it's the or origin of the striptease. It started in the 1920s, came over from Europe, and uh, sort of evolved through vaudeville, which is generally includes some comedic sideshow acts and some striptease. Uh, and then evolved into the 70s into actual strip clubs as we know them now and at that point went away and as of I would say probably early 2000s it started getting a little bit of a people started doing it again Um, I don't think it ever went away permanently but now it's a fairly household name burlesque um, in part thanks to the movie the Cher and Christina Aguilera movie, which was not burlesque. It was totally cabaret, but that name was taken. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I started doing burlesque. Um, when was this? What year was this? Ooh. Uh, it has been... I was 19. So it's been... We can leave it at that if you want. No. <laughs> it's been 11 years. <laughs> That's interesting that um, to have that epiphany at a young age and be able to act on it so quickly, the person that gave you this opportunity, they still a part of your career to this day? Um, Not really. So uh, she did. um, Then she started a new burlesque troupe and I became a part of that troupe. And that was my first experience with... um, group shows where you have the same performers usually performing separate acts but as a show all together um and I am not a I'm not a super dramaful like as much as I love drama I am not a dramaful person as far as life goes um and so I ended up that I didn't like the dynamic and the energy and I ended up leaving and starting my own troupe uh, about eight or nine years ago and still to this day have it and have my girls with me and um yeah so um not they're not really a part of my performer life but they uh in peripheral I see them occasionally yeah and it sounds like they were uh formative in sort of developing your skills and then also the um the impetus to start your own yeah um troop yeah crew it's troop the official name troop Troop, yeah i guess dance troop but uh crew is probably more how we identify walk through some of the uh, larger misconceptions around um, the work that you do. It could be uh, 
dancing on the burlesque world. It could be around photography. It could be around um, sex work. But just what are the things that you find in your day-to-day career uh, that you wish more people were informed about so that they didn't continue to make the same mistakes? Yeah. um, Let's see. Okay, so we'll start with um, identity. Uh, And this is um, very new for me, I would say, you know, within the past five years or so. I didn't really, again, I grew up in this environment where I didn't really have to, like, say, this is my sexuality, this is my identity, Um, and that, in a way, led me to be a little bit um, naive, honestly, Um, but I think that um, as a photographer, one of the things that I really wanted to focus on was body and identity positivity. Um, Body positivity being that your body is beautiful and that I want to give you a space where you are able to celebrate that. And that puts pressure on me to be a safe space for someone. And it also makes me incredibly grateful when someone does decide to take me up on that space um and then as far as identity positivity just really being open to every type of person I mean we have like you know and at this point we say he she and they them you know we have three identities that you can be and that seems so small as far as the amount of people that exist on this planet uh, that you have to fit in. It used to be you had to fit into two categories and now you can fit into three. Woo! <laughs> um, but I try to be uh, the, you know, I, I mostly do wedding photography and the wedding photography industry is very heteronormative. And I try to really, I'm trying to change that and to educate other photographers and just people in general that we using he she or bride and groom or bridesmaids groomsmen it's not necessary like these are just words that someone made up that we've become that have become known as the standard the tradition yeah yeah um and we don't have to use those we can use wedding party we can use partners doesn't have to be bride and groom um and so just changing these really small uh the small verbiage Uh, to be inclusive is so minor in and it it might you know it feels a little uncomfortable and a little awkward at first but it becomes you know second nature once you are actually practicing it Um, and just you know I ask in all of my intake forms I ask people what is and I, I actually used to say what is your preferred pronouns and I was recently um you know educated that preferred pronoun is saying like what would you prefer not what is your pronoun and so I've changed that now and so I am constantly learning too um, and I'm always open to feedback especially surrounding things that don't directly involve me um, 
I think that's maybe the hardest thing for some folks is that, and this is true not just with uh, gender identity and sexuality, but with race and mm-hmm. a number of other things, is that if you don't have that safe space to uh, ask questions and be corrected, mm-hmm. then you won't do it. You won't ask those questions yeah. and you'll continue to live uh, in the bubble that you've existed in and you'll continue to act the way that you always acted and um, and it's in some ways unfortunate that there have to be these people that serve as the um, the educators, the teachers for all of us. And I'm sure they get sick and tired of always being that person in their mm-hmm. friend group or in their family where they're just like, uncle, you know, Uncle Jimmy, like we've talked about this. Mm-hmm. You can't say that anymore. Um and for people that have, um, you know, they have always done things a certain way, breaking those habits is is not an overnight um, transformation. And yeah. so there's this constant growth that has to happen. But if uh, I think in a lot of cases, particularly around these topics, there's because they are taboo, there aren't enough spaces where they're constantly being challenged and evolving and so we're not able to make the progress that we hope we would be able to um you know i remember even as a kid there used to not be a box for multiracial and so i'd always have to ask the teachers like well can i check two things like one of my parents is like this my other parents like this and that was only like 10 years ago um so yeah it's it's helpful um when we're to have constantly those spaces. trying to fit people into boxes, right. right? That's what's comfortable. Right. And we even create new boxes. It's mm-hmm. not even just that we're trying to fit them into the boxes we already have. We create new boxes and then put people in those boxes. Uh, so now we have, I, I always feel so um, lost whenever I'm in a conversation about um, what I used to say was LGBT rights Mm -hmm. and then I it seems like every time I would have the conversation there'd be another letter and sometimes I would just throw my hands up I was like I I don't know and it's hard for me to keep up and I'm not saying that I don't want to learn but I'm also just at a loss because um, because things are always changing and so it's um, it's very liberating on the one hand and it's also again, I think really hard for people to yeah. um, to always be changing and evolving and, and staying on top of those things. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, society, the media and society um, often has taught us that it's shameful to ask questions about those things and that's that's a way of controlling us and not making it a common subject of you know a household conversation Um, we don't talk about sex work at the dinner table we don't talk about queer identity at the dinner table Um, things like that that's not something that is okay to talk about and I have always been very open and very honest about my part in sex work and my 
identity, um, my sexuality. I, I try to be that person who is open about it and so that people do feel comfortable talking to me about it. But at the same time, it's not my responsibility to have to educate everyone on it. And so it can feel exhausting at times. Yeah, and, you know, there's uh, a whole generation of people now that grew up on the internet. And so on the one hand, they have access to all this information Mm -hmm. that they could tap into if they wanted to learn about a particular person or subject. But I always find that it's, the, the real change is made when there's somebody that you know that is able to um, have this conversation with you mm-hmm. because, again, it, it affects you directly and you're able to see it in your own life. I remember I was in um, English class in high school at Riverside and um, was having a conversation with a few of my classmates, and I don't even really remember in hindsight what the topic was about. But um, I must have been 14 at the time, and I used the word faggot in a conversation. And a peer of mine, I think she goes by a different name now, but Hillary was the person, Hillary Reagan was the person that was sitting next to me. And I remember turning and looking at her, and the look on her, I will never forget the look on her face, this overwhelming disgust but almost more so disappointment in me as someone that she looked to as a friend and someone that she trusted. And, and I don't know that I've ever used that word since then. And had it not been for that moment, I probably would have continued to, maybe eventually I would have evolved and had a similar moment at some other point in my life. But I just remember thinking in that moment, this really, really Mm -hmm. hurt them. Yeah. You know, there are kids now that that doesn't happen for them because it, it takes place on Twitter or on Instagram yeah. or on Facebook. And so they don't, they say something and then they are not turning and looking someone directly in their eyes. And it's a lot harder to be held seeing that emotion. Accountable. Right. Um, so although a lot of that information is available, that accountability from your community and from your peers um, is all happening online and it's not happening in a way that's really changing minds of anything. I think it makes it, worse um and so yeah i I worry about that for because it you know you and i are probably the last generation before the internet was ubiquitous yeah um before everything was at your fingertips right so you so you've spent the last or it sounds like most of your professional career sort of working in burlesque when did you pick up photography because i know that's been a um, something that you've spent a lot of time with lately and it's a different uh, approach right because typically you're on stage you're in front of your audience and you're um, acting accordingly you're performing in a certain way when you get behind the camera you are trying to get other people to be as confident and forthcoming as you're able to be so how do you switch your brain to be able to get into that mindset as a photographer um so i was a freelance um nude model for i don't know close to 10 years um 
and at one point I realized that I was really really tired of seeing the female body only through the male gaze and I'm not saying that every single photographer I worked with was was doing was just showing my body through the male gaze some of it was purely artistic but for the most part um the photography community up until recently was totally run by men as a lot of um the world yeah at large, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of the world is um and so I had always been interested in photography but I there was just this fear of I'm I, I just don't like to do things that I'm not instantly good at um and so I had never tried it and I bought a camera and signed up for a class at the Durham Arts Council because I didn't know how to work it. Like, there's a lot of buttons on cameras. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was instantly totally addicted. Um, and so initially, my photography was really focused on working with the people that I had worked with as a model. So working with other um, models male and female, and really showcasing bodies in a way that was sometimes sexual, but also sometimes wasn't. Um, You know, a body is not inherently sexual. It's flesh and bones and... That's not what I learned when I was in school. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you have sex, you will die. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... That was something that I really wanted to educate people on was that um, if I, if this person chooses to use their body sexually, that's their choice. If they choose to use it artistically, it doesn't mean that it has to be looked at in a sexual way. Naked bodies are not inherently sexual. Um, and really like cultivating the difference between sex and nudity is I don't know that they'll ever really be totally separate but it's something that I feel pretty passionately about um when you recently took a trip if I'm not mistaken I did yeah uh, sort of exploring this idea yes I went to um the Lupin Lodge in California and it's a nude resort um it has tennis courts and a pool and hot tub and yurts that you can stay in and I was a little uncertain about it until I read that it was run and owned by women um and then when I got there, they actually had a mission statement, which I kind of wish I had brought with me. But um, it just went over the fact that, um, you know, children, men and women are all welcome there. And I don't know if it said anyone in between, but it gave me the sense that they're pretty accepting um, and that they really wanted to differentiate between the nude body and the things that we do in private or sometimes not in private if we choose to have sex in that way but that sex and nudity were totally different things here and that any type of sexual advances or even leering um, was not acceptable and that this was a place that they called themselves naturalists this is our natural form 
and that we should have we should feel comfortable and have the freedom to be nude in a safe space if that's something we choose to do i wonder about and i'm curious how your experience was i would be weary of a place like that in today's society with because we're always on camera right like mm. there's always somebody that has their phone out that's yeah, doing things no for instagram i would imagine that yeah. they have to put some rules in place around this i would maybe even be worried about like drone photographers trying to fly <laughs> over the resort it uh, was um it, i think it was a 15 acre piece of land okay. um with no signs leading up to it um I mean, but it's also not a place that you would just stumble upon. It is not a place you would stumble upon. And for me personally, I mean, my nude photos are on the Internet. You can see me nude often. So that was not a concern for sure. me. But I do totally understand that. And and again, that's like there is a sense of of shame surrounding your nude body being shared with other people. And I think that's really like the deeper issue there is why do I feel shameful about my body being, sharing my body with other people? Um, and I think that's a much bigger societal sure. issue. Yeah, I remember uh, a f- on a few different occasions either having conversation with you online or in person about uh particular experiences with photographers and Mm. and them not going um not going well and just i I think that is what it takes i know there are a couple other um, female photographers that i follow Uh, jessica arden who Mm -hmm. you may or may not know has been doing more um i'm gonna butcher the word so i'm not even gonna try and say it but more like sensual photos for women and um I think that's super important to have Jessica somebody who's done photos for us for Runaway. And I remember always thinking like she is really uh, as someone who didn't particularly like having their photo taken really welcoming and comforting and makes mm-hmm. it feel like this is not as big a deal as it was made out to be. And to be able to do that two levels further when it comes to more revealing photography i'm sure is um a challenge and is something that separates amateurs from professionals you know it's it's one thing to be able to pick up a camera and click a few buttons even if you you read the entire manual front to back and know how to operate a camera it doesn't make you a photographer that's true Um, are there any particularly good experiences that you um can share that would enlighten folks who again maybe have preconceived notions about nude photography or um yeah well i think that um as far as people maybe being interested in in having in giving that experience to themselves um i will say that it's absolutely for men and women um why do you say that Uh, because I think that we tend to, I think, you know, women definitely deserve to have this catered towards them. Um, but there are a lot of people who don't identify as a male or female. And there are also a lot of men who would really benefit from the experience of, um, 
this vulnerability that it takes to be naked with someone else that is not yourself or your partner. Um, and most people don't spend very much time with themselves nude. That's just like maybe a couple minutes when we get out of the shower, maybe when we're having sex, but like that's tends to be the extent of most people time being naked um it's actually the state of being that i enjoy the most i wish that i yeah. could spend more time <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. it's it can be really comfortable um and so i think that um you know all identities and um sexualities and all people in general really deserve to have this experience um but i think that as far as from a observatory standpoint um i really encourage people when they see a photo of someone nude to really think about it like don't just be like oh there's a naked woman or oh there's a naked guy or there's a naked person you can you can sit with it like you don't have to just be like oh nakedness bye and like swipe up you get the or double tap and swipe, and then you, you know? yeah, and then you move on. Yeah, you can look at it and you can say, okay, so are we sh- expressing? Do you like? Do we think this person is expressing sexuality in this photo? Is that why this was posted? And that's okay. It's okay for a woman to express her sexuality online. <laughs> it's okay for a woman to express her sexuality online. Uh, is this? taken for from an artistic standpoint was this really more about a body and maybe its surroundings or a body and um nature is this from more of a naturalistic standpoint and neither of those are wrong those are both totally valid and and it can be a combination of those two things too um but i think that a lot of people will be like I remember when I was doing a lot of nude modeling, a lot of people would be like, she's not doing this for attention. She's doing this for art. And I'd be like, well, sometimes. But sometimes I also really like to express my sexuality and I'm comfortable with other people seeing that. And I want other people to see that so that they might also be comfortable in that. Um, And so that's the space that I try to really cultivate for, especially boudoir photography, because generally boudoir photography really is, yes, (laughs) boudoir um, is really about embodying your, being okay with your body and, um, and exuding the sexuality or the sensuality or the sexiness that you might only show again to your partner um and some people don't even get that vulnerable with their partners and so i think again holding that safe space for people to be comfortable doing that and then if i'm lucky they're comfortable with me sharing those photos so that the whole world can be like oh my god you're so beautiful or you look so confident or this or that and what I hope people see in these photos is that this is this is you this person did not have more experience than you they're not a professional model they didn't have more confidence the only thing they did was they took that leap 
to send me an email or send me a DM and say, hey, I'm scared, but I think this is something I'm really interested in. I always, this is something that I'm not proud of, but I feel like whenever I see photographs of um, mostly women in some like uh, sexual position and there's a really artsy caption Mm. on their Instagram post, I'm always just like, you are so full of shit. (laughs) Like this photograph is really just to get my attention and this caption is misleading. But we're taught... That it's not okay for us to just be posting something for attention. Or even, yeah, or even for the art on the other end. Like it can be, it's somewhere on that spectrum. But whenever I see those things, I'm just like, oh, give me a break. Like, you know, don't quote like, you know, Emerson when it's really just, yeah, when you're like, yeah, it's (laughs) like you hanging off this balcony with no clothes on. Um, But, and it's not, it's not fair. I don't, like I said, I, I'm not particularly proud of that opinion, but I do often roll my eyes when I see stuff yeah. like that. And and but there can be again, they there may be a sense of an epiphany for this person when they're hanging off of the balcony naked. They might be like, Oh my god, this is my truest, most comfortable form and I felt really empowered doing it. Um, and I think that's really what it is for everyone I think it's about empowering people to be comfortable doing what they like to do I like to be naked and I'm totally okay with that Um, but a lot of people aren't okay with saying that they like to be naked or that they like attention or that they like sex and especially not that they like sex for money no no societal norms are saying that's okay and I think that giving people the space to to be happy with what they're doing, um, if it's not harming themselves or other people, and and as far as like what we consider harming harmful, as far as sex work, I think is a whole conversation that needs to be really revisited. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd like to try and tackle some of that in the time that we have left. I'm curious. Um... It seems like sex for money, whether that be um, behind closed doors, on camera, Mm -hmm. um, whatever it is, is still a predominantly male-owned industry. And um, I'm wondering, well, you think there are opportunities to try and fix that? And then also, what are people, what part of the conversation is maybe an opportunity for them to to enter and engage and and become more educated. Yeah, um, actually, I think this is a good time. So I brought this book with me. This is me. the the one book that this you've is, bought in your lifetime. This is the first. This is the only book I've ever bought. Um, I said this was the first book I bought earlier, and he thought literally I meant that. Um, this was the first book on sort of set my introduction to sex work um, and feminism. And it's called Whores and Other Feminists. Um, and this, it's, it's a compilation of essays, stories, poems, all written by sex workers um, who all consider themselves feminists. Uh, so this is an excerpt from Vicki Funari. 
This is great. I feel like we're doing like sexy reading rainbow right now. Oh, yeah. Should I put on my sexy voice? (laughs) Uh, There is no standard sex worker. Each woman has her own reasons for working, her own responses to boredom, pleasure, power, and or trauma, her own ideas about the work and her place in it. This work can be oppressive or oppression or freedom. Just another assembly line job, an artistic act that also pays well, comic relief from the street realities, healing social work for an alienated culture. What is at work within each woman that lets her accommodate this situation? Intense denial, infallible sense of humor, codependency, incredible strength, a liquid sense of self, the only safe thing to say is that we're all in it for the money. So I f- remember reading that and just being sort of blown away because we think of, I, I mean, and I think a lot of people, different people have different senses of what a sex worker is and why they're doing it. And the answer is you don't know unless you ask that person. I don't know why a painter is a painter. I don't know why they do it. I don't know why anyone chose to do the job that they are in unless I ask them. And a lot of other jobs are a lot more cut and dry. You know, you went to school for this. Your parent did this. um, But sex work is humanitarian work. It's passion. It can be artistic. uh, It can be because of past traumas it can be there are so many different reasons that people are in this line of work and again that is specific to women that that passage but there are um all identities that are working in the sex industry um so i think that did you ask me about misconceptions? I just got so lost in no, that. No, I'm, I'm glad that you did. No, no, it's um, so part of this stems from uh, um, some uh, a friend of mine uh, posted something on Twitter the other day. I can't remember if I sent it to you or not, but he um, was just sort of talking openly about pornography and how mm-hmm. oh, sort right. of st- strange it was. That it's like, oh, it's so interesting that um, you know we would watch two mm-hmm. people have sex on camera and um, you know I made the point I was like well porn historically has been a pretty male driven male uh, both produced and consumed industry and Mm -hmm. so everything we're seeing when it comes to pornography and the way we think about pornography is from this lens Uh, and there are a lot of um, reasons for that and then there are also a lot of problems with that and a a lot of uh yeah i don't know it's just it's it's one of those things that it feels like we have we it's a taboo topic and it's partly taboo because there hasn't been someone to step in and say actually like we're gonna totally take this in a different direction and not allow men to continue to um yeah dominate the conversation the industry and so forth so if we're talking specifically about pornography um 
yes, it has been male dominated and and maybe it's not just pornography, you know, sort of sex work for money at large. Right. But. So so what I will say is that pornography definitely male dominated as far as producers and uh, you know the people who put it out there. Um, also, pay for your porn. Like if you have a favorite porn star. You can literally, like, there's, like, buttons on Pornhub where you can buy them a coffee or tip them. Just do it, okay? Um, But when we start talking about sex work, we are really starting to look at a place where the workers are actually taking control of this um, exchange for money, the sex part. Um, and, you know, there's not always what we think of as sex. Um, it can be, I'm taking my clothes off and sexually arousing you, or I'm, you know, doming you, or there's so many different types of sex work. Um, but we are looking at, especially with full-service sex workers, um, that they are taking control of their jobs and their bodies. And you want to know why it's still illegal? Because no one's profiting off it except for them. So there is no room for the men or the higher-ups to profit off of these women selling their bodies. They're selling their bodies because they choose to, and they are making a profit for themselves. And they're entirely in control of it. And so... Pornography is like there's there's a system, there's a, a hierarchy, there's, you know, all of these things that have been put in place to make it so that the workers are just the workers and they're coming in, they're getting paid and they're leaving. The people who are making the real money and who are controlling what's put out onto the internet are primarily men. Um, and so I think that Educating ourselves on other types of sex work and educating ourselves on the rights that full-service sex workers should have, um, that is the way that we're going to then start changing the control. Yeah, it's almost like we need um, like a, f- a female-founded streaming service. There for- are There are several. Uh, they're a little bit harder to find. That. Yeah. Um, if you like literally Google like female owned porn companies, um, there's a really beautiful erotica um, filming company called Four Chambers, um, referring to the, the heart. Um, and it's a collaborative. Um, so it really focuses on sexuality, not just a man having sex with a woman or a woman having sex with a man, but it focuses really on sensuality and the different tactile things that can be really arousing that might not be just sex. Um, And that is run uh, primarily by a woman. Yeah, I know when recently Tumblr was Mm -hmm. uh, the skeleton that used to be Tumblr was Mm -hmm. sold off. Uh, a lot of folks talked about how Tumblr used to be this safe haven mm-hmm. for sort of adult entertainment mm-hmm. at large and not specifically what you described as sort of male on female from the male perspective, but there was this whole uh, plethora of 
genres and yeah. people involved and the whole community built around it that um, sort of was upended yeah. whenever Tumblr um, took its tumble. But that's that's interesting to hear that more of these sort of female-owned um, companies are starting to hopefully take more of the market share. Um, and that's, again, you have to be like consciously... I mean, I think this is the whole thing. Like, if you want to be woke, if you want to say you're woke, you have to actually put effort into it. You have to seek out the female-owned sex work um, streaming services. You have to, you know, pay attention when someone tells you what their pronouns are. You have to practice using neutral pronouns. You you know, you have to do this work if if that's how you want to identify yourself yeah yeah the the uh and racial inequality i mean i like that we don't need sure. to really yeah that's a whole nother can of worms but yeah like, <laughs> in another hour worth of podcasting if yeah. not more but um yeah it seems like th- there's um you know for most schools i don't know if we had sex education when we were going through riverside i Maybe it was oh like God, one like page grueling, of yeah, one chapter. Yeah, half hour with the health coach. Yeah, but it's certainly not something that is covered in depth enough to really um, give a full understanding to any child going through mm-hmm. puberty. Um, but it also seems like a missed opportunity for us as a society to um, set our kids you know, on the right path as they become adults and, and are like, I mean, this, these are the formative years for them as their, their body is transforming and they're becoming more self-aware and we really do hinder that development by not being forthcoming about. Yeah. um, Yeah, I, you know, I work with, um one to four year olds um i did work almost exclusively in that vein of education and um just even talking about consent um you know like i i don't want you to touch my body right now and it might be a hug you know like we can't it makes my skin crawl when someone says go give so-and-so a hug go give your uncle or your aunt a hug we can't tell, we can't like educate children that that they can be told to use their body in a certain way. We can ask them if they would like to have a physical connection with this person. Or we can tell them it's not kind to physically connect to hit someone because that person did not ask for that. But talking about consent, it, it's really a, a very basic uh, thing that we should be educating our children on um, and then later on talking about sexuality and not making that shameful not you know calling our body parts these weird names because the word penis is going to make everyone so uncomfortable you know like that's not going to help anyone actually because then you're going to grow up and you're going to think oh, it's not okay for me to talk about this because it was hush-hush and shameful when I was a child. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's that education, sex education, body education, 
identity education is so important from such a young age and if we don't teach our children that it's it's shameful or something that should be talked about in whispers then they're not going to grow up thinking that's the way it should be talked about and i've seen so many articles that are um like porn is basically their sex education Mm -hmm. they're not being taught in schools they're not being taught by their parents and so they're getting it from older siblings who are also getting it from porn or they're and particularly now and again in the age of the internet where you can access these things at any time at any time with 5g connection Mm -hmm. it's not like back in the day you had to you know sit there with a dial up and (laughs) you might be out of luck it's like i can just get it on my mobile phone when i'm on the train home yeah and of course like you know again if they're watching porn and this is their introduction to sex this is a from a male gaze generally um very theatrical show of sex and if you don't understand that like yeah you don't just walk up to someone and be like okay i'm gonna stick my penis in you you like talk about things and you like maybe ask people what they like and where they want to be touched if they don't want to be touched you know things like that i I mean i i do think that they're being um that porn being accessible is is great but i think that if we're not educating you know it is theatrics i think that that's the bottom line of it is that this is a performative art that is made for one specific reason and that's to get us off and that's cool, but that should not be sex education. Although you do travel quite a bit, you did say that Durham is your home and has been for uh, most of your life. You and I have both worked in the arts community in some facet mm-hmm. for the last decade or so. Um, and now that Durham has become this... Um, destination of sorts where lots of folks are moving here Uh, it seems like we're importing a lot of consumers and exporting a lot of our creative class and so I'm curious what you think about the state of Durham as is and as someone who does get to see a lot of the rest of the world if you think that Durham is a place that you and just artists in general can continue to sustain a living here and and build their craft here in a equitable way where they can actually make a life for themselves oh um yeah i think um from my experience traveling i would say that um the speed in which durham is growing is pretty unique to what I've seen Um, and I think that's where the danger is Uh, I think that we're saying yes people come 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 like yeah we want you living here we're gonna build these giant sky rises we're gonna knock down all of these small houses and we're gonna build these giant houses that the people next door to these giant houses could never afford and they're lucky if they own that house Um, and I think that it is happening at such an intense I mean it's 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 only been 10 years you know Durham downtown Durham was the place that you went when you had to go to court and that was it that was it I mean that was it and 
now uh, you can't afford uh, most people can't afford to live within you know a 10 mile radius of downtown Durham um and so I do feel like the reason that Durham is growing is because of the people who have lived here for 15 plus years. It's because of the people who decided to open up these restaurants in downtown Durham and take the risk of like, is someone going to drive into downtown Durham to come to my restaurant? And it's because of the artists. We have so many artists here. We have so many musicians and visual artists and other creatives that it's really attractive to people when they visit or when they think about moving here and they look at the scene but I absolutely feel like there is not going to be a place for us in the next 10 years for us to physically for us I don't think there's going to be a physical place for any of us to exist and live within Durham I mean and 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 personally I don't consider you know like out by South Point that's not Durham to me (laughs) that's not where I want to live in Durham I want to live nearby downtown where I grew up and where I feel at home um and yeah I I don't think that Durham is taking into consideration the people who are being pushed out by the people who are bringing money in. And I understand the need for money. I understand the want for money. I understand greed. Like, I love money. (laughs) Um, But I think that if you're not supporting the people who who, you know, were the pioneers for people wanting to come here, um... I mean that's just that's just being corporate, right? Yeah, it's tough. It's there's a you know, it's a catch 22 because on the one hand, when you own a business, you want as many customers as possible, mm-hmm. right? And the more that Durham grows, the more potential there is for those customers. The flip side of that is that a place like the Carrick that used to be in the heart of downtown Durham ha- moved from their location on Parish Street down Main Street into the Golden Belt area, not even really in Golden Belt, but sort of Golden Belt adjacent. Uh, And now, you know, this month in September will be their last community show, and that's it. Um, And I don't think that that's uh, for lack of trying. It's it's not as if they're going away uh, willingly. And so. You know, the Carrick, when I first started working with Gabe at Runaway, that was one of the institutions that I remember admiring and looking to like, oh, yeah, I want to be like Laura. I want to be like the Carrick. And I um, think they do such a. (laughs) Um, But, you know, they represented an essence of Durham that now doesn't exist downtown. And it's not as if the Carrick is being replaced by some other version of the Carrick it's mm-hmm. being replaced by a burger joint yep. or an office space or I don't know what else I don't I don't go to a lot of these places anymore yeah, so I, don't, I, I know and that's the thing it's like the people at, you know if if when I walk around oh downtown a lot of the time I don't even feel like I'm seeing the people who made downtown what it who made it possible for downtown to become what it was. 
Um, and I feel like we're all kind of searching for this like space in our own home, mm-hmm. this space where we now fit in. Like, where are we going to be corralled to next? Where where can we find a safe space that is also affordable for us to live in? Um, and I feel like that's not on us. I don't feel like that's our responsibility. I feel like that's on Durham. I feel like the people who are approving of all of these plans and who are are saying, yeah, it's fine. You can knock down these houses. You can buy these houses and knock them down and build McMansions. I just don't, I don't think it's okay. And I think that if you're not creating a space for people that is either rent controlled or um, is giving people the opportunity to say, hey, I can't afford to live here, but this is what I do in the community. Can I get a break? Um, I think if you're not creating those opportunities, you're gonna you're gonna lose us all, and I think that's tragic. Yeah, and then you end up becoming, you know, like any other city, any other similar yeah. midsize, slightly progressive town in this country, and then people are like, oh well, if you know, Toledo becomes slightly l- more affordable than Durham in five mm-hmm. years. I'm just going to leave Durham and go to Toledo and do the yeah. same thing. I'm, they have craft breweries there. They have a couple music venues there, and yeah. um, you know they have a they opened a 21C hotel there. So I'm just going to move <laughs> to Toledo, and then Durham becomes Durham, you know, circa 1993, and we're right back where we started. Yeah, um, and so uh, it's it's interesting. Again, Jay Gunn and I had this conversation when he was on the show about how do you build for the next 20 to 50 years and not just see what's right in front of you. And I think that's the challenge that Durham will have is Mm -hmm. building sustainability in its its workforce and the people that live here in its creative class uh, to be able to continue to say for years to come, yeah, Durham is a great place for artists. Durham is a great place for... Musicians. And I will say that um, Monica Byrne is um, organizing artist talks with the city council. I believe it's Wednesdays. I'm probably going to mess that up. They've had a few already. Yeah. Right. Is it, was yeah. it Wednesdays? I, mm, we'll, we'll get that fact yeah, checked. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll uh, fact check that and let you know. But if you are an, art, an artist and um, you want to speak to city council, that's a great opportunity um, and highly encourage everyone to actually, again, take action and educate yourself and let your, you know, take the opportunities that are that are available. I'm going to get you out on this. What are you inspired by right now? What's something either in your work life and your personal mm-hmm. life that is inspiring you to get up every day and keep doing what you're doing? Um, so I'm just going to say the first thing that came to mind. Um, one of my really close friends, um, is she does a lot of, um, body work and a lot of emotional work and a lot of different aspects of sort of what we would consider like woo woo. Um, and honestly, it's been really inspiring just to be around her and to see her vocabulary change and to in part allow my vocabulary to naturally change 
to um to include like allowing myself the space to feel vulnerable or to communicate with someone that I'm upset or to put my needs out there um and to feel like it's safe to say this is what I need if you can't offer that that's okay but I would like some clarity on it um and so having the these new like verbs and this new way of communicating I've felt very empowered and a lot of um yeah, again, a lot of clarity in my relationships with people. That's really important. It seems like better communication could probably solve all of our problems. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a, a good place to start and a good thing to uh, let our audience walk away with. Uh, thanks again so much for yeah, being for on the show. Um, hopefully we'll get to do this again at some point and cover the myriad of things that we didn't today. Uh, how should people continue to follow your work? Where can they find you online or in person? Uh, yeah, so my um, my personal Instagram is at callmemissblissx. My photography Instagram is shootwithbliss. Um, in person, you can always come find me at a boom or bust burlesque show. Um, we have one this coming Saturday at the men's club. It'll be our first burlesque show at a strip club, so that should be ever a new experience. Yeah, usually they don't really go hand in hand. Huh. Um, and uh, yeah, or you can hire me to take pictures of you. That's a good place to start. Yeah, give her more money. <laughs> money. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Again, you can always check out this show and more uh, at The Buddy Ruski Show on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to shows uh, or on the website, buddyruski.com. They always get posted there. Um, if you would like to support the show, I do have a Patreon page. So you can always go to patreon.com backslash buddyruski. Uh, until next time, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.